News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, there's something we don't play every day, do we? No, that's a little Miles Davis on this Tuesday morning. Why? Ask Raji Sohal. She's the one who asked our producer, Greg, to play that. Morning, Raji. <laughs> Good morning, Simi. I didn't know he would actually play it, though. <laughs> yes, today... Today marks 30 years since Miles Davis's death. So that's uh, some Miles Davis we're hearing there, which is so nice to hear on a rainy morning. You know, my it. favorite Miles Davis movie cameo is, do you know this? I don't. I'm intrigued. I mean, I know Miles Davis from like clips on Arsenio Hall. So go no, ahead. My favorite Miles Davis movie cameo is the movie Scrooged with Bill Murray. <laughs> Where Whoa. when he is walking down the street complaining about Christmas and how much he hates it, he passes <laughs> some buskers on the street and the buskers are Miles Davis and David Sanborn, no. which I oh, thought, that's so yeah, good. and I just love that because they're just like there playing music <laughs> on the street, which I, I, that's like one of my favorite Christmas movies. But No one has ever encountered a busker that good. There's no chance. <laughs> No, some of them get a pretty good crowd out there. I'm sure somebody has some thoughts on that. Um, but the other thing we're going to talk about this morning has to do with, you know, parents out there. And I know this is a, a great topic for you, Raji. You saw what the Vancouver School Board did last night. You know, you're in North Vancouver. Would you like to see the school district over there do the same thing? Ooh, how do I talk about this without sounding too annoyed? Simi, first, I would have liked to have seen a mandate for all teachers to be vaccinated, regardless of whichever age of child you're, you're, or student you're dealing with. That should have been number one. And then now that kindergartens through kindergartners through grade three students have been exempt from this mandatory mask for you know a lot of reasons, including that studies have found that the younger the child is, the less effective the mask is because the child is always pulling it off, yanking on it, touching their face. Now my kid, you know, just started kindergarten um, this month. And she's the only one in her class wearing a mask besides another kid whose uh, father is an ER doctor. Um, so just the two of them have been wearing their masks. And I see them through the window when I go to pick them up. And they, even though they're wearing them every day, they're not wearing them effectively. And then I see them holding hands with other kids in the class. And I think that just like we should follow, we should be more in step with the common sense that we've seen prevail in other countries. In in Europe, for example, a lot of teachers have gotten creative about getting the kids just outside more, which we know is better for their health and well-being. And, you know, if you look outside today, it's pouring rain. Some people might think, exactly. oh, our kids want to be out in that. Well, get them in the covered areas. They've got tons of covered areas at elementary schools now. And also get them some rain gear. I was it's Vancouver. Say, so I was Put their rain pants and slickers on and let them go Thank splash you. around. They will love that. They'll love it. And it didn't become like this here in Vancouver with the rain overnight. Like this is Vancouver. The weather's not going anywhere. So it's time to embrace it. And my kids love being in the rain. So I think the kids should be, you know, fo the focus should instead be on distancing them, put them outside, use covered areas occasionally, um, you know, ask them to wear a mask if they want to. But I, I don't love personally, I don't love the idea of getting kindergartners and grade ones, you know, in masks. And I would like first and foremost to see teachers vaccinated. If you want to talk about protecting the kids, if that's what this is about, then the teachers must be vaccinated. 
And kids, you know, we need more patience with them with the mask use, but let's also use some common sense there and, and have them, you know, distance a bit from one another. How, That's what they're doing in other places and it works. How did you have that conversation with your kindergartner about that, about the putting on the mask? I explained to her that, you know, mama and papa wear our masks all the time. You notice we keep distance. You notice we haven't had people in the house for a year and a half. All of this is not just with our own safety in mind, but our neighbors and people around us. And now uh, that you're, you're entering kindergarten, it's time for you to be a part of that teamwork. And teamwork only works if we're all doing our part. So at school, I want you to wear your mask. And I know it's going to take a long time to get used to it. And you're just going to get better at it with time. And she is. She is getting better. But, you know, currently, um, it's still probably doing a little bit more harm in terms of exposing her to more germs because she's not fully used to it. So she does adjust it constantly, constantly touching her face, whereas otherwise I think she wasn't touching her face that much. Um, But she's getting better at it. And then, you know, just the more normalized it is that they see more and more other kids doing it, I think uh, that will help them keep it in check. That's what I wonder. If if the benefit of having this mask mandate for including K to grade three in that, if that won't actually be the thing that helps. And that is, if every kid is doing it and struggling with it, will they all learn together and just kind of subconsciously help them realize this is something that they need to pay attention to? Yeah, probably. Um, but I, I still want to back up to the fact that teachers need to be vaccinated and that teachers have like a lot of them have been saying that this is about the about children's health, about protecting these children and their families. Well, the number one way for that to happen would also be for teachers to be vaccinated. So I again, I go back to that teamwork thing. I want to see everyone vaccinated, Sumi, as soon as possible. I still cannot believe how many people are not Really? Like, have you talked about that with other parents? Like, what is the school community at your child's school saying? Well, I noticed how people will wear, like adults I'm talking about here, will wear a mask when they feel like they're amongst people who would appreciate that. And then I see people uh, getting quite relaxed. I was talking about this on air with you yesterday that I'm in a lot of spaces in North Van where I see grownups, adults taking their masks off uh, indoors. And I'm like, what yeah. rule did you come across that I did not? But <laughs> I think you use pretty carefully. You but, hit uh, on something there. Is that is, I think people are adjusting their mask behavior depending on the people that they are with. So yes. if they do sense that, oh, these are people here who are going to get you know uptight about the mask, and they put their mask on. But if they yeah. think they can get away with it, they're going to take the mask off. Yes, I've been in elevators with people who are not wearing a mask. We're talking about like the Listen, kind of a more higher risk spot, right? I uh, was elevator. in a, a hospital on the weekend mm-hmm. uh, visiting a family member and we you know, were waiting for the elevator to go up and the door opened. There was like a few people waiting for the elevator and we were kind of last to arrive. So the door opened and it's a pretty large elevator as hospital elevators usually are and two people got on. And so I asked, I said, oh, what is the rule here? for how many people can get on the elevator. And the Mm -hmm. nurse said to me, it's two people. She said, so you're going to have to wait for the next one. I said, no problem. Like, we'll wait. No problem. My daughter and I were standing there waiting. And so we, you know, find that elevator leaves. Next elevator comes. My daughter and I get on. So that's two people followed by two other nurses who got onto the elevator. Oh. And we all all had our masks on, but I looked at my daughter and she looked at me and we thought, oh, 
okay, we didn't say anything. We just kind of moved to the back of the elevator, right? Because we thought, I thought the rule was <laughs> in, in too... the two inches that you have to do. Well, that, it's a yeah. pretty big elevator. So then there was lots of room. So we just kind of moved to the back of the elevator. But I just thought, so what, what is going on here? Like, what, what are mm. the rules about how many people are? So, and this is a hospital, right? So you wow. thought it would have been a little bit more strict about that. And it wasn't a crazy busy hospital. But yeah, I, I was just surprised that, that it just depended on who you talked yeah. to in that moment, what the rule was. Yeah, I think there's this unspoken memo going around about uh, how, you know, yes, if you're with people that seem a little bit more uptight, i.e. me, uh, people who want to follow the rules, then (laughs) um, you might adjust your behavior. But, you know, with Halloween around the corner, I'm wondering what kind of Halloween we're going to have. I thought people in my neighborhood, at least, um, and we trick-or-treated in two neighborhoods, actually, one in East Van and and one in North Van. I found that people were so creative and did a wonderful job of distancing and uh, there was no taking away from the fun. There was nothing that was missing. Everything was still there, but people just did really cool things like giving uh, candy through shoots and uh, long tubes and stuff like that. So great. Everyone still dressed up. I thought it was fantastic and I love Halloween. Like Christmas is fine. Halloween is like really, really fun. It'll depend on the weather. I think that will help us decide how successful of a Halloween this is going to be. But it's a good point. Fascinating discussion, Raji. Thank you. Thanks, Simi. It's our Raji Sohal there. Yes, we're talking about mask mandates, schools, school districts, Vancouver School Board voting to extend their mask mandate to include kindergarten to grade three. Would you like to see your school district do the same thing? How much communication have you had from your child's school? This is Mornings with Simi. Yesterday on the show, right about this time, we were telling you about the Green Party making some changes federally. Their leader, Anime Paul, stepped down in a statement yesterday. Didn't take any questions, though. But boy, oh boy, was it ever controversial. So what's next for that party? Joining us now is David Aiken, our Global News Chief Political Correspondent. Good morning, David. Hey, morning, Simi. That was really something yesterday, and it feels like the the knives continued to be out the rest of the day for Green Party people talking about this. Yeah, and, and, uh, you know, this was not a surprising announcement yesterday. In fact, probably one of the least surprising things uh, I've sort of seen in the last, uh, you know, six or seven weeks. Uh, This um, collision, essentially, between Paul and many members of her own party, her own federal council, has been brewing ever since, of course, Jenica Atwin, the Green MP elected in 2019 in Fredericton, crossed the floor, uh, what was it, probably last, uh, you know, late spring, crossed the floor to join the Liberals. Um, She crossed the floor ostensibly because she had some difficulties with Paul and with people in Paul's office, and that just set the whole party into the fight, which culminated in an absolutely abysmal performance at the polls last Monday. And um, and then Paul's resignation yesterday. As, as it, the, the surprising thing maybe is it took her a week to say, that's it, I'm out. Um, and yeah, she took no questions. On the other hand, it's sort of like, uh, I'm it, I'm done. Um, and she did throw some, you know, more bombs uh, sort of she back did. at her party. What, what I sort of, I think is incumbent upon this party now, the party has a new federal council that was elected actually during the election. Uh, it has a new... Uh, a new, essentially, party president right now. The president is a woman named Lorraine uh, Rick, uh, Rickmans. She's an Indigenous woman from Ontario. Um, I'm surprised that none of them, you know, went in front of a camera yeah. yesterday and said, 
you know, thank you, Anime, appreciate it. Um, here's our side of the story. And in fact, reporting, I've been reporting on Anime Paul's A fight through some of the anti-Semitic, uh, and uh, of course, for those who don't know, Anime Paul is, is black and Jewish. So she's been, she faced racism and anti-Semitism in trying to achieve the leadership. And I reported on some of the debates internally on that and on some of the problems with her leadership. And no one from their federal council, their governing council, they don't go on the record. They, you try to contact them and they don't answer your messages. They don't answer email. And here's a case where your leader's just, she hasn't resigned yet. She's, quote, started the process of resigning. I don't know what that means, but I you know, hear from back channels of some Green members. They're worried that now people will try to burn the house down on her way out. Well, I'd like to hear from the federal council about the process for Paul's departure, about what they're going to do about this, why they didn't have candidates in 86 ridings, why they had, I mean, if you looked at, I don't know if you've had a chance uh, to look at the, you know, how, how the Greens did in B.C., but it was terrible. They only got five and a half percent of the popular vote. This is B.C., you know, where, yeah. we, you know, that's Elizabeth May's riding and lost. That's that's losing seven. That's sorry. Uh, they got five point four percent of the vote. That is less than half of what they got just two years ago. And of course, they lost one of their seats over there in Nanaimo. Lady Smith, Paul Manley was the incumbent. Interestingly, Sammy, just some gossip in the calls I've made so far, I've got. People saying Manley would be an excellent idea as an interim leader, oh. as a sort of consensus candidate as an interim. I haven't, and Paul Paul Manley, there's another guy who during all this wouldn't respond on the record to reporters' calls. Elizabeth May will not go on the record uh, to reporters' calls about yeah. what's going on. So somebody's got to step up here with this party. It's so bizarre about that. It wasn't the problem all the way through this, though, David, is that Enemy Paul took the blame for not having candidates and all the ridings and everything that was going wrong. But where was the apparatus for this party? Well, and that's a great question. I mean, Paul yesterday saying she didn't get a chance to hire and pay for a national campaign manager. I have spoke to people who have run Green Party campaigns in the past, and they're as frustrated with the federal council as anybody saying, you know, this this all really goes to the the fifteen member federal council. And again, I repeat. The party has just had their elections for that federal council uh, in August. And uh, so now it's up to, I, I guess, that council. But they, um, the, the whole infrastructure just seemed to me to be just consumed with, uh, are you for Paul or against yeah. Paul? And that's all they've been doing for the last six weeks. Climate emergency, we'll put that on the back burner. Right. Well, we have this big <laughs> argument about our leadership. It's that's, been bizarro. That is bizarro. Exactly why we were talking to you this morning. David, thank you so much for your time. No problem, Simi. Cheers. Yeah, cheers. David summed it up so well. That's David Aiken, our Global News Chief Political Correspondent. Bizarro is how you can describe what is going on with the federal Green Party these days. This is Mornings with Simi. There seems to be no end to stories about shortages these days, whether it's those lineups in the UK where they're experiencing severe fuel shortages, food shortages too, empty grocery store shelves, or maybe retailers in the US who are warning consumers to stock up on their Christmas buying toys in particular early because keeping things on the shelves is a problem. Now, there are COVID-19 factors exacerbated by an aging workforce, labor issues, shipping issues. I mean, you name it. 
So we got to wondering, well, could Canada face something similar? Could Should we be thinking about maybe doing our Christmas shopping early this year? Joining us now is Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, Public Administration and Food Professor at Dalhousie University. Good morning, Dr. Charlebois. Good morning. So should we be worried about this? Like, Are you hearing about shortages here in Canada too? Oh, I'm done with my Christmas shopping already, aren't you? <laughs> Don't freak me out like that. Come on. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Well, I, I think uh, some concerns in Canada are fueled by what's happening in the UK. The uh, Britain is a different market. It's an island country. Uh, it, it went through Brexit uh, really at, at the wrong time with, with COVID and everything else going on. So they, they are facing major macroeconomic factors that really... Uh, we can't apply to to our own Canadian reality here. Uh, the North American market is actually quite robust, to be honest. And um, so I look at food distribution specifically, and um, we don't we're not concerned about uh, about shortages or running out of food anytime soon. Uh, we should we should be fine. the 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 only thing that 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 is uh, of, of great concern to us is, is food affordability. We are seeing uh, major headwinds of impacting food prices, uh, especially um, with uh, transportation costs and, uh, and the fact that input costs are higher. Um, harvest hasn't been great in the northern hemisphere this summer, including Canada's. As you know, uh, since you are in B.C., <laughs> you saw what yes. happened this summer. Uh, so that's going to cost us all uh, it, it, at the grocery store and uh, at the restaurant. So, yeah, shortages, no, we're not going to run out of food, but uh, do expect to pay a little bit more at the grocery store. So is, is the situation for Canada then a little different because we do have, you know, a, a good food supply chain here, plus, you know, the land border with the United States helped us. It seems like in the UK, all those shortages are coming as a result of Brexit. Well, there's there's basically 370 million people living uh, between Canada and the U.S. with only two nations. In Europe, you have well over 500 million affluent consumers, but uh, but uh, that number is separated into 28 countries, including the U.K., which is a nine country, not part of the EU anymore. So things are pretty complicated there. I actually did live in Europe for a couple of years with my family, and... Uh, and I did learn how things can get really complicated logistically in Europe. So I, I don't want people to start worrying about the fact that we may be running out of gas or running out of food. Or uh, The only thing, though, is that our supply chains are, are much slower and less efficient as a result of COVID and what has happened with, uh, with the world economy. That, that is something that is impacting the entire planet. So we're not immune right. to that. So if you're ordering something especially durable products, and I know that some companies are encouraging people to order ahead of time for Christmas for toys and things like that. It's just, it's taking a little bit longer. If you're hoping to order like a Halloween costume right now, chances are it's either out of stock or it's going to come in after Halloween. Yeah, that's not going to be good. So overall, though, would you say supply chains in North America are more secure that way? I would say so, just because of how vast the territory is, 
and, and because most of the transportation is actually land-based, and so it's it's actually we're not uh, we're not at the mercy of uh, of things like what happened with the Suez Canal in March, for example. And I mean, the more elements you have to deal with, the more complicated it can be air, water. Uh, in North America, once it lands, um, once it arrives at Vancouver, Montreal, Halifax, right here, or uh, in, in Kansas City, Chicago, other places, we're, we're good to go. I mean, the trucking system in America uh, is is very robust. The only thing, there are two things that impacting trucking right now. The number of truckers, it's hard to find truckers, but we're finding them. And the other e- issue is, is insurance. Uh, it's actually costing more for truckers to get insurance as a result of COVID. Let's say, for example, if they get sick, uh, it's harder to get the company to cover costs if they can't really transport the goods that they have to transport. That's that's one issue that I'm hearing right now in the trucking industry. Right. And that's the thing. Look, we've been worried about the trucking industry, right? Like that's part of the issue that is impacting the UK for sure is they just don't have enough uh, truck drivers to bring them all the goods that they need. So you said North America, we're doing well on that. Is there something that we have done differently? No, I mean, th- there's only one border. Uh, whereas in the, in the UK, yeah, the, there's the, there's the, the, there's the tunnel, of course. And, uh, but uh, once you actually get to Britain, you're at the mercy of, of the system there. And that's why it's a little bit more complicated to ship anything to the UK. And it gets more expensive too. Uh, the population is older as well. Uh, we have the luxury of being north of a superpower called the United States. And a lot of truckers that have come into the, to Canada are actually coming from America. And so, and trucking companies in America are pretty well organized. So I wouldn't worry about, about that. And of course, uh, you have to sympathize right. with our friends over in England, obviously. It, yeah. It's not, it's not funny. Uh, it's, it's really not fun what they're going through right now. But we shouldn't expect to, to actually experience the same thing in Canada. Okay, well, that's good. So in terms of food supply, though, uh, which I know you study intensely, do are we looking all right? Like, let's say for Thanksgiving, no shortage of turkeys this year like we saw last year? Uh, n- no, I... Actually, I didn't even realize we ran out of turkeys last year, did, did we? No, it was just <laughs> tough to get did. them. For a lot of people, it was tough to get them in some places because I think everybody was having their own Thanksgiving last year rather than gathering for Thanksgiving, right, at somebody else's house. So there was yeah, like a run on quite a few grocery last, stores. I think what happened last year is that we ran out of smaller turkeys because gatherings were smaller. We had fewer people. I think that's what was going on. But again, we're not running out of anything. I mean, here and there, you may hear about a restaurant saying that they're having a time ordering packages for deliveries, for example, plastic utensils. I mean, it's been going on for 18 months. Uh, you'll hear shortages of, uh, of, of something or something else. It's quite normal. I mean, what we went through in the last 18 months is, is, is highly unusual. So I wouldn't yeah. panic if you hear... Uh, that we're short on on anything. It's temporary or you can actually get something else in lieu of what you were looking for. All right, we hope so. Dr. Charlebois, thanks for your time. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Dr. Sylvain Charlebois is the Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab and Professor at Dalhousie University. So, yeah, good news for us. Hopefully we will not face any kind of shortages the way they are in the UK, parts of the US right now. One can only... This is Mornings with Simi.
The provincial government says children in the school system, grades 4 through 12, must wear masks for all indoor activities. For children younger than that, K to grade 3, it's just recommended. But here we are, few weeks into a new school year, and already we're hearing of schools struggling with COVID-19 cases within their communities. So last night, the Vancouver School Board voted unanimously to extend that mask mandate to all students, kindergarten to grade three included. And that means all students in Vancouver schools will be required to wear masks for all indoor activities. They've become the first school board in the province to do this. Should other districts follow suit? Joining us now is Matt Westfall, the president of the Surrey Teachers Association. Good morning, Matt. Good morning, Simi. What did you think when you heard this, what Vancouver is doing? I was really pleased that the Vancouver School Board has taken this leadership to extend masks to uh, school to students in kindergarten to grade three. And I'm challenging the Surrey School District to do the same and other districts across the province. What, like, what is the response to that, do you think? Like, is this up for discussion? Is this something that you think the Surrey School District might do? Uh, if they don't, they would really need to provide a good reason. And we haven't heard any good reason for why children from kindergarten to grade three can't do it. All we've heard is an assumption that they can't wear masks. But you know who doesn't say that? The people who actually work with children that age. They say that, yes, they are fully capable of doing it. Yeah, what's it been like for you at your school at the start of this school year, Matt? What's been going on? Well, I'm in the union office, so I'm not in a school. But certainly we're hearing from a lot of teachers wondering how how are things going to play out with the Delta variant? And also, uh, what difference is it going to make with not all students wearing masks? And we're seeing evidence from other districts with Chilliwack and Maple Ridge, schools shutting down and outbreaks elsewhere. The signs are not good, so we really need to have as much protection as we can. Is there enough communication going on, do you think? Definitely not. Uh, And we're we're still waiting to hear what the new plan is for communication. But I think uh, parents in the community have said loudly they want to have more transparency and more information about what is happening in schools so that everyone can make informed decisions. Right. Has that not improved? Because that was, what, a week ago when they said they were changing the requirements on that? Yeah, we still don't have any details on what that will mean. So uh, it, it, so it's going to change, but we don't know what it will be. So right now it's still given on a need-to-know basis. Right. Doesn't it feel like that we're wasting time on that, though? Yes, uh, absolutely. And that's why what Vancouver has done is a proactive approach, and we need to have just more data, more transparency about what is happening That's the only way you can have people trust what's going on in the system, that they know that they're getting the information they want. Right. So if teachers ask for the information, then, Matt, like, is that information forthcoming if they need, if they want to know, listen, have there been outbreaks at the school? Are there cases at the school? Do they get told? No. Uh, Right now, the, the provincial guidelines don't really say that. It's just you know that if there's something you need to do about it, such as to self-isolate or to self-monitor, but otherwise there's not a general broadcast of information. And I think principals would like to tell their staff, but there, there's some risk if they tell too much and go beyond what they're supposed to be doing under the, the current rules, which we expect to change. Yeah, but doesn't that, does that make sense to you? Because I feel like people, everybody would be more careful if you knew there was an outbreak two classes down the hall. Yeah, you would think so. Uh, so it, it's just a frustration. It, and with respect, it's a paternalistic approach that look, we will tell you what we think you need to know and trust us for the rest. And I think people are at a point where they aren't necessarily willing to just trust that all the information that they need is being given. So what do you hope to hear today, this press conference at 1230 from the health minister and Dr. Bonnie Henry? I hope that there is a system that will work. It doesn't have to be the same as the one last year with thousands of letters going out. 
but it should be something where parents aren't having to try to crowdsource information about outbreaks and cases in different places so that there's a place where they can look where they, they can trust that all the cases will be recorded in terms of where they're happening and what the numbers are. So from what you've heard from teachers then, are there cases in schools probably more than we realize at this point? Yes, uh, because a lot of teachers are reporting they're seeing a lot fewer students in class. And it's hard to know exactly what that is. It could be because some of them are sick, could be because of the rumor mill, it could be because parents are cautious and they don't fully trust what's happening. It's hard to really interpret that, but they definitely have noticed a change in attendance. Interesting. So you think parents are just keeping their kids at home out of an abundance of caution? I think some definitely are. Uh, and, and other ones, it's just, well, they've heard that someone's sick, so they want to wait and see how things play out. Oh, interesting stuff. All right, Matt, thank you. Thank you very much. Matt Westfall with the Surrey Teachers Association. He is the president there, hoping the Surrey School Board follows the lead of the Vancouver School Board in mandating masks for kids from K to grade 3. Right now, it's just recommended for that age group. Vancouver School Board voting last night, becoming the first school district in the province to do so, saying that they are extending the mask mandate for those ages. Matt Westfall saying he hopes the Surrey School District also does the same. I can't even imagine how stressful a time this is for parents right now and that you're having to make the call yourself without getting all the information. And it doesn't surprise me that parents are just deciding out of an abundance of caution because they perhaps heard from a friend of a friend that there was a COVID case here, there, wherever it was, and they're just going to keep their child at home. But without all the options that you had last year if you kept your child at home, right? This is Mornings with Simi. So we've been talking this morning about the COVID situation in our schools right across the province. Vancouver School Board taking the step of voting in a mask mandate for kids K to grade three, which is not required right now under the provincial order. It's recommended. VSB say, now we're going to take that step. Could other school districts follow suit? We know they are struggling with dealing with the number of cases they're getting weeks into the new school year. And different schools are responding in different ways. Check out Abbotsford Christian School. They are moving to virtual remote learning because of a recent outbreak of COVID-19 cases in students. School will be closed starting today for in-person learning for kindergarten through grade six. Joining us now is Julia Sabenga, who's the executive director at Abbotsford Christian School. Good morning, Julius. Yeah, good morning, Simi. How are you this morning? I am good. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about this. I know sure. it can't be easy, but what, what's been going on in the community? How many COVID cases are we talking about? Like, when did you realize there was a problem? Yeah, we, I mean, we've been tracking this for uh, for a while and kind of watching where it's going. And uh, yeah, I just decided in, in consultation with Fraser Health yesterday that uh, uh, it'd be in our best interest to just go to remote learning for, uh, for the younger kids. So, uh, so that's our plan for the rest of this week. Right. So when did you first notice there was perhaps a higher level of cases making you uncomfortable? Well, I would say each day as the numbers continue to mount, um, you know, we kind of have a bit of a threshold. Um, We realized that one particular classroom where all of the kids were expected to either isolate or were home because of a case. Um, So that was a pretty good indication to start with. And then, uh, yeah, I'm just talking with Fraser Health and our uh, our FISA rapid response team yesterday, it just made sense to uh, to do this, just to, we kind of call it a circuit breaker, to hopefully kind of slow down this, uh, what's moving through the community. Right. What kind of support has Fraser Health provided, Julius? <clears throat> uh, Fraser Health has been great. They, uh, 
They do a great job of contact tracing and doing their work. They work very closely with schools uh, doing that. Uh, of course, the concern is that, uh, you know, timing-wise, it's, it's a few days delayed, and that has a lot of, makes a lot of people anxious and nervous, and we understand that. Um, but the work that they do do has been exceptional, and uh, we've been in good relationship with them all along. And what about the parent community? How is the parent community taking this? Uh, well, as, as you've been talking about, um, you know, it's anxious times right now for parents. Um, it's, it's really tough. So being a parent, especially of young children, it's very difficult. Um, you know, and having to make decisions with not necessarily knowing all the information is really hard. And uh, that's, uh, that's felt in our community as well. So we're hearing that, I think, you know, by and large, parents trust schools, um, but at the same time, it's uh, it's just difficult. So that's been our uh, our what we've noticed in our school as well. Yeah, is there a desire for more information? I know the rules changed last week, but clearly, parents want to know more, don't they? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't hear that a resounding uh, um, voice like that that maybe other districts are feeling. We're um, we're certainly doing our best to try and inform parents as much as we can as we know things. Um, I think parents recognize that this is, uh, this is very difficult to manage and it takes time. Um, and so I think our parents have been relatively accommodating for that. So how long do you anticipate this going on for, this uh, working remotely? Yeah, we're hoping that it'll be uh, complete uh, by the end of this week and that we can get back up in, uh, in, in school, in class instruction already beginning next week, Monday. We're going to reevaluate at the end of this week, see where the numbers lie, and then uh, then make a decision for Monday. So did you have like a set number in place? Like if we surpass this many number of COVID-19 cases, we're going to have to have a backup plan? Yeah, that's that's kind of how we do it. I don't think we had a set number in mind. I think we evaluate uh, basically daily on where we are, what our attendance rates are, um, how much of that is, is directly connected to covid um, and, uh, you know, a lot of it has to do with uh, what type of percentage of kids are actually in the classroom. Um, as you've been talking about, there's parents who are leaving their kids home just because they're out of an abundance of caution. And so, uh, and that's their right. So, um, so it's not a specific number, but it's, it's something that we look at each day. So do you think that that, you know, keeping kids kindergarten to grade three in masks as well, will that help? You know, all along, our our response, uh, along with uh, all independent schools in the province, has to is been to follow what the province recommends. So at this point, um, if that's the recommendation from the province or the guidelines, we'll follow that. Uh, at this point, um, you know that's that's uh, how we follow, and so we will uh, we will accommodate if need be. But uh, at this point, that's not the direction we're going. Right, Julius. This must be challenging for your teachers as well. I mean, yeah. they had to, they've had to pivot again, right? Like yeah. to, to do online learning. How has that been? Uh, our teachers are awesome. That's, uh, that's the short version of it. They're just amazing. They're able to do that. Uh, they've been used to this now ever since it started in, uh, in the spring of 2020. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of people say, do you need a day or two off for, for staff to be able to pivot? And the answer is no, they, they can handle this. They're ready to go. Um, learning has already started this morning. So, uh, yeah, our teachers are awesome. Right. So is the key, do you think, here to keeping things as seamless as possible for the kids with their learning? Yeah, that's, uh, that's the key. We want, uh, we want it to be as seamless as possible and, and how the kids feel that they're, or, you know, where learning is actually happening uh, 
continuously. All right. Well, Julius, best of luck. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Amy. Good luck. Yeah, you too. That's Julia Semenga, who's the executive director at Abbotsford Christian School. So they just shut it down. They moved to virtual remote learning because of a recent outbreak of COVID-19 cases in their students and among close contacts. And they just said just too many kids were not in class, whether parents were keeping them home or whether it was an exposure case, whatever the case may be. So starting today... The school is closed for in-person learning for kindergarten to grade six. And they refer to this as a circuit breaker, that they just want to, you know, see the number of cases come down before they reopen it. But, you know, for teachers, this would be incredibly difficult that you are pivoting. The whole commitment this year was supposed to be keeping kids in school, but to have to pivot on a moment's notice again and say, all right, we're going to do this online for the next week or however long it's going to take. And that's pretty challenging. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. This Thursday marks a very significant day for us here in Canada. It is the first statutory holiday of its kind, Truth and Reconciliation Day. So maybe a lot of people out there are wondering about, well, how do we take meaningful action on this day? Our show contributor, Raji Shilhal, joins us now with more on that. Good morning, Raji. Good morning, Simi. I think this week people are going to be wearing a lot of orange shirts And I know a lot of people will be having conversations with one another about the impact of colonialism in our history. But I think there was a major change this summer when there was the news of the unmarked burial sites. They just affected the way that we look at our past completely. I mean, it's an understatement to say we were affected by it. And it also changed the way that we look at our present. And then the pandemic has shown us that uh, these inequalities that exist in our world, um, they're exacerbated when things get tough, right? The pandemic shown us globally, nationally, and then right here in BC that those that are already marginalized, they feel the impacts of that kind of thing worse. So a lot of people have woken up to these facts. They want to make society more equitable for all people, including Indigenous people, and they are wondering where to where to do that, how to do that. So one such guy is a local Vancouverite. His name's Josh Hensman. He works for the city in the engineering department, but he had an idea about how to make September 30 count. So he launched a campaign. It's called One Day's Pay. You can check it out online. Be sure to, to add the .ca. And uh, it's just that. If you're getting a day off, consider donating that day's pay to Indigenous organizations. When I first heard about the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation, I felt conflicted because here I am, a relatively privileged Canadian, and I'm going to be getting a paid day off. And a lot of the a lot of the people that this day is supposed to recognize, Indigenous peoples, are probably not going to be in a, in a similar position. And it just it just didn't really feel right to me. I'd been seeing a lot of stuff in the media about Indigenous issues and you know boiled water advisories. The, the missing and um, the missing indigenous woman and also the uh, remains of children that were found um, on the properties of residential schools and I've been having conversations with people about this uh, about these kind of issues and no one seemed to know what to do so I had a sense that like myself a lot of Canadians want to take action but they don't know how to take action so this was sort of a way for me to take action and then potentially to motivate and inspire other people to also take action. That's so interesting, Raji, because I think he's absolutely right about that. We have this important day coming up, this first Truth and Reconciliation Day, but the point is, like, what are we going to do with it? 
Yeah, because Canadians, you know, we're getting a statutory holiday that's meant to honor Indigenous people. These are people who have had their own privileges systemically denied. So if you are donating the money that you would normally earn that day, I mean, you're really doing a lot. You're doing a lot to contribute to how we move forward. This is a totally grassroots movement, this One Day's Pay initiative. It's being guided also by The Circle, which is a well-respected Indigenous-led group. And they're saying, donate to these three groups through our site. They are the Residential School Survivor Society, the Orange Shirt Day, Every Child Matters Society, which does incredible work too, and Friendship Centers. And you can make those donations on the One Day's Pay website. The donation, Josh tells me, means that we are taking September 30 as a step forward, moving past just the phase of reflection alone. We've been reflecting about Indigenous issues in Canada for a long time. We actually need to take some action. We need to do something. And I think it's really incumbent upon on Canadians to take some accountability and, and step up to take action. I think that with, when you're in power, it's difficult to give up power. And part of that is because maybe you just don't see it. And so I think that, that as Canadians are coming to see that, uh, that, there, is, that there are issues um, around this, this area where we're starting to think, well, we need to do something about that. So this is sort of a, this is a, a journey. I think that we're, we're not going to find a solution quickly, but, but this is a step in the right direction. Oh, such an interesting idea. Then, so Raji, you mentioned this is a grassroots movement. How can people get involved? So check out the uh, onedayspay.ca website for more info on how to donate directly to them. And then the money will be distributed uh, amongst those three societies that I mentioned. But also, Simi, I think some people are going to be hearing this and going, hang on, like I can't actually afford to, to get that whole day's pay going somewhere else. Well, there's other things that you can do. They suggest uh, think about how you can amplify Indigenous voices. Like, can you educate yourself more on the issues? There's tons of information on their website about that. So you can always reach out in other ways that make sense for you. Maybe you can donate time or, you know, even a fraction of that day's pay. Or maybe you can educate yourself and spark conversation amongst people around you about some of these issues. This is our first National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. We got to make it count. Yeah, I just looked up this website. And so we should be careful so people to look it up. It is onedayspay.ca. There are other websites that talk about like donating one day's wages or whatever. That's a different situation. This is onedayspay.ca. Uh, and you know what? This is only the first one. And I feel like, Raji, this is a good first step. It's a good first step, step uh, Simi. It's also um, a meaningful one to when Josh speaks in that uh, clip that I shared with you, when he speaks about giving up our power, I mean, a lot of people are going to hear that and go, what are you talking about? I have no power. I have no power in my own life. I have no privilege. Well, we have all benefited from a system where other people have faced barriers or obstacles of many different kinds that we may not have faced ourselves. And that includes for Indigenous people. And when we take a hard look at our past, I don't think there's any way of changing the past. There's no way you can just simply write a wrong um, in history, but there is something that we can do that's positive to move us all forward collectively. When I think about being a Canadian, when I think about being a Vancouverite, I think almost first about how we are there for each other. And uh, I really hope that people can uh, consider this One Day's Pay initiative as a way for us to take action on Truth and Reconciliation Day. So what 
is going to happen with this money? So if a lot of people take up this cause, it's a great cause. Where does this money go? Um, Great question. It will go to these three organizations that were selected in consultation with, um, you know, being guided by the circle, this Indigenous led group. So those three groups are the Residential School Survivor Society, Orange Shirt Day, Every Child Matters Society. And you've probably seen um, people in the city in Metro Vancouver already wearing orange shirts uh, that say Every Child Matters on it. And then also Friendship Centers. And so you can make those donations on onedayspay.ca's website. And then the money, the funds will be distributed amongst those three groups. That's a great one. All right. Thank you so much for that, Raji. Thanks, Simi. That is our Raji Sohal there talking about onedayspay.ca. This is Mornings with Simi. Jobs, jobs, jobs. That is the big issue for the provincial government these days, of course, along with COVID-19. But it's about how to get more people into the workforce, whether it's, you know, extending a cap on the fees that food delivery services can charge to restaurants to help boost restaurants. Uh, Maybe it's, you know, investing in the tech industry to get more women and minorities into the tech industry. There are all sorts of things that we are trying. So what do we know that works? Ravi Kailan joins us now, Minister of Employment and Jobs and Economic Recovery. Good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning, Cindy. Thank you for having me. Let's start with this, the money that is being invested to help attract more people to the tech sector. How does that work? Well, uh, BC is the only province in the country that has more jobs right now than it did prior to the pandemic. And that's put on a, a lot of pressure on our labor market. And I think you and I have had this conversation on uh, you know, employers having a tough time finding workers. But at the same time, we know that the pandemic has disproportionately impacted some people. Women, um, underrepresented groups have felt the brunt of COVID in, in a harsher way. So for us, a top of mind issue is part of the economic recovery. How do we ensure that those that face the hardest elements of COVID actually see a benefit from the uh, rise? And so we know the tech sector is growing and continue to see huge investments coming to B.C., and yesterday's announcement of $29 million will go to support employers to hire more people from underrepresented groups to help address the labor shortage. Right, but doesn't that require a lot of training too? Because those groups also have to understand that this is an option for them. Well, there's right. And, uh, and so what we've done is we've set up a, a program where uh, an employer uh, that hires someone uh, gets up to $10,000 to support that on-the-job training and higher uh, skills training that might be required to take that job. So we know, for example, uh, some, uh, some folks that are entering the tech sector may come in with just a, maybe a certificate or a, a very a micro-credential, uh, and some might come in with a PhD. They just graduated from university and through COVID couldn't find work. And so we put a lot, enough flexibility in place so that 3,000 people can get an opportunity in tech, but a lot of flexibility so businesses can do that training on the job to bring people on right away. What are the hardest hit industries right now in terms of trying to attract labor? It's, you know, we're, we're facing pressures in the tech sector because it's growing so fast, but we're facing pressures in the care economy. Uh, you know, we've uh, been uh, talking a lot about uh, nurses and, and uh, um, uh, care aides and even early childhood educators for uh, our growing childcare sector. Um, we're also facing pressures in hospitality and tourism. As they start opening up and scaling up, 
uh, we're starting to see lots of pressure there as well. And so I don't think there's one sector that uh, is immune uh, from this challenge. I mean, I think we're facing it uh, pretty broadly, but we see an opportunity in tech in particular because it's pretty good paying jobs uh, to be able to, to help create more diversity in that sector. Right. Now, recently, in the last couple of days, you've also announced that we're going to extend the cap on the fees that food delivery apps can charge uh, to restaurants. How much of a difference do you think that has made? It's made a huge difference. I've had uh, the opportunity over the last week to visit a lot of restaurants, and this is the issue that comes up the most. And, you know, a lot of the businesses and a lot of restaurants didn't maybe really uh, take advantage of the delivery side of things until they weren't allowed to have customers anymore uh, or they had minimal uh, requirements of having capacity limits within their business. And so businesses and restaurants have been forced to go there. And unfortunately, what we saw through the pandemic was some uh, delivery apps uh, raising the, the cost on the businesses to a point where many businesses were losing money on every order that went out. So we brought in that temporary measure. Uh, and uh, since we're not out of the pandemic yet, we're extending it to the end of the year. And we'll engage with industry on what happens uh, after that. Yeah. Do you foresee that potentially becoming permanent? I'm not sure. We want to be thoughtful. We want to engage with everyone to think through uh, the implications of anything, if anything at all. And so we have not made any decisions on uh, past the end of the year. Our focus right now is supporting our restaurants and cafes during this critical period, but we're going to continue to engage with them on future solutions. Are you concerned at all about the lead up to the holiday season? And I know retail workers, they always have to hire more people at this time of year. Is that even going to be possible? Well, it's always a challenge, and I know a lot of employers are starting now to scale up and try to hire as many people as they can. Uh, and we're also facing historic pressures on our supply chains, hearing from a lot of retailers who are saying, I've put these orders in, and it's going to be crazy busy at Christmas time, uh, leading up to Christmas, and we're not even sure if our supplies and the products we've ordered will arrive. And so uh, COVID has really knocked a lot of things out of uh, out of the normal order that we're comfortable with. And, and so we're trying to manage all those things uh, as we go forward. So how can we deal with the supply chain issue? What, what can the government do about that? Well, we've announced uh, $25 million that uh, we uh, soon will be announcing that we've uh, supporting manufacturers here locally to uh, replace uh, some of the challenge positions that we've been in our supply chain. So it's called the Supply Chain Resiliency Grant, and, and many manufacturers uh, have applied for that to buy equipment to be able to fill gaps wherever they are. So we're working right now to address that. Um, it might not solve all the problems, but we certainly think it will uh, put us in a good way as we move forward. So, you know, looking ahead then to the jobs numbers, which will come out in just a few days now for the month of September, what are you anticipating? Uh, it's hard to know with COVID. Uh, you know, we, we've seen uh, an increase in cases in the north in particular. Uh, we're seeing a high amount of hospitalization in the north. Uh, the interior seems to be plateauing. Um, and so with the COVID cases, it's, it's directly linked to how much uh, our economy can open up. And so uh, I just don't have a magic ball on it. But uh, given that we're the only province uh, in the country that has more jobs now than prior to the pandemic, the movement is going to be uh, slight, I suspect, up or down. All right. Well, we'll be talking to you again. Thank you so much for your time. 
Thank you, Shami. Stay safe. You too. That's Robert Kalen, Minister of Employment and Jobs and Economic Recovery, talking about that ongoing labor shortage. Like One thing I have learned in doing all the reading and talking the last couple of days is I think I am going to do my Christmas shopping early because it does sound like retailers are a bit concerned. I know that Dr. Sylvain Charlebois, when we spoke to him earlier, was talking about food and he said food supply should be fine. But retailers, which was not his area of expertise, continually hearing from retailers, they're worried that the items that they have ordered are not going to get shipped in time, that it's just not going to arrive, and that, yeah, it might be another one of those Christmases where you are fighting for that last Tickle Me Elmo on the shelf or whatever this year's holiday craze toy is going to be. might be better to start that earlier rather than later.